Welcome to Used and Abused, a music podcast. This is episode number three. We're going to be doing Motley Crue, Too Fast for Love. This is Friday, May 11th, 2018. Unfortunately, we've got no shoutouts to give this week. But we're going to add a new segment into the show, and this is This Day in Music. I chose to do it in 1981 since Motley Crue was formed in 1981. May 11th, 1981, Bob Marley dies at 36 after losing, after a long battle with cancer. Marley became the first international reggae superstar after blending elements of rock and R&B into a sound, making it appealing to a wider audience. During his ascent, Marley is injured in a soccer game with another player's cleat punctures the big toe of his right foot. It gets infected, and in 1977, doctors tell him that it needs to be amputated. Marley ignores the advice on the basis of his religion, figuring his faith will heal him. He continues to deny treatment even as melanoma develops in the toe and spreads through his body, eventually killing him. Again, today, May 11th, 1981, Bob Marley dies at 36. And that's This Day in Music. Here we are, episode number three, Motley Crue, Too Fast for Love. On this album here, was released by Electra Records in 1982. We're going to be going over a brief history of Motley Crue from 1981 through the release of the Electra album in 1982. So sit sit back, get a drink, and let's begin this journey. January 17th, 1981, Motley Crue was formed. Former London bassist Nikki Six met former Sweet 19 drummer Tommy Lee, during which they're looking for Guitarist to audition. Nikki and Tommy see an ad in the recycler that reads loud, rude, and aggressive guitarist available. Tommy calls the number left in the ad, and Mick Mars shows up to audition. Tommy answers the door, and I quote, There was this little troll standing outside with black hair down to his rear end and high-stacked platform shoes, but particularly a whole roll of duct tape wrapped around them to hold him together. He looked like a flat, broke, painfully shy, freaky-looking relative of Cousin It. I called Nikki, come here. You gotta check this dude out. When Nikki and him were standing there face-to-face, it was like the Addams Family meets Scooby-Doo. Nikki pulled me aside, excited. I can't believe it, he said. Here's another one like us. After playing some songs, Mick pulled Nikki and Tommy aside and said, he ain't going to make it. Talking about the guitarist that was there for Motley Crue. So Nikki and Tommy told Mick, since you want him out, you have to tell him. Mick told the guitarist, you're out of here. There's only one guitar player in my band, and that's me, end quote. This three-member unnamed band began rehearsing and, and... Auditioning seniors. However, no one ever worked worked out for this band. One senior who already had an LSD problem, better known in the music industry as lead senior disease, wouldn't take off his white gloves to clap during the song Toast of the Town. Mick didn't care for the senior, but he wanted the blonde senior in another L.A. band named Rock Candy. Tommy knew who this was as he had gone to school with Vince Neil. Tommy had given Vince his number to audition for this current unnamed band, but Vince was happy in Rock Candy. Until one fateful night, Rock Candy was supposed to play a house 
party in Hollywood. Vince and the drummer of Rock Candy showed up, but the bassist and guitarist didn't show. Vince, in his white satin uniform, felt like an overdressed idiot while the police shouted, the people shouted for music to, for two straight hours. Vince stated, and I quote, when I called the guitarist that night, he said he didn't want to play rock and roll anymore. He had cut his cut off his long blonde hair, bought a closet of skinny ties, or closet full, sorry, bought a closet full of skinny ties, and decided that Rock Candy was going to be a new wave band, end quote. Next day, Tommy called and told Vince that this was his last chance, and their current senior wasn't working out, and I quote, he got me when I was weak. End quote, Vince said. Vince showed up the next day with his then girlfriend. Tommy said this about Vince's girlfriend. We nicknamed her Lovey, Lovey on the spot because she was blonde, rich, and stuck up like Lovey Howe from the Gilligan's Island. She got out of the car and looked us over like she was his manager. Well, I have to check out the guitar player because he's got to be really good if he's going to play with you, baby. She cooed, getting all on all of our nerves instantly. Vince had. Platinum blonde hair exploding out of his head like fireworks. He started singing some of the lyrics Nikki gave him. He wasn't right on top of the song, but he hit all the right notes and stayed in key. Something else started, something else started, started to happen. His squeaky high-pitched voice combined with Nikki's ratty, out-of-time bass playing, mixed over-ramped guitar, and my way-too-busy excited drumming, and it sounded right. Nikki started rewriting his songs for Vince's voice. And the first result was Livewire. We were Motley Crue right then. We, re- we created one of our classic songs five minutes into our first jam with Vince. End quote. Tommy stated. Vince is now a member of the fourth, is now the fourth member of this still unnamed band. With four members together, and I quote, we were more of a gang instead of a band. End quote. Neil stated. They sat around coming up with band names. One name that Nikki wanted to call them was Christmas, as it was already a famous name, so they would be famous. Going back to 1976, while Mick Mars was in another band named White Horse, the band was rehearsing in the living room. The basses of White Horse walked in and stated, and I quote, well, this certainly is a motley-looking crew, end quote. After rehearsal was over, Mick wrote down Motley Crew in a notebook. But below this, Mick wrote in big letters, M-O-T-T-L-E-Y-C-R-U, and said, I have to have a band named Motley Crue, end quote. Back to 1981, sitting around drinking Lowenbrow, Vince stated that, and I quote, they changed the spelling of Crue to C-R-E-C-R-U-E, and then took the dots above the O in Lowenbrow, and put them over the U in the new spelling of crew. And over the O in Motley, a career decision, a career decision made in a matter of minutes. End quote. Motley Crew got their first gig at Starwood, where Nikki had been working during the day, and got the band a spot, a spot opening for Y&T. At the beginning of this first show, the crowd was booing Motley. But by the end of the show, they had won the crowd over, who had told their friends about the new band, and even more people showed up for the Saturday, sh- Saturday night show. But when Y&T came out that night, half the room emptied. emptied. As their popular- popularity soared, Motley started selling out show- shows on the Sunset Strip and caught the attention of Alan Kaufman, a contractor from Grass Valley, California, who wanted to break into the music business. However, Mr. Kaufman 
found out, found out the hard way that this wasn't going to be cheap, but rather a very expensive investment, especially with this band, as they had him buy them all new wardrobe for their live show. We had, and I quote, we had him, him buy a snakeskin jacket and black pants for Tommy, a new leather jacket for Mick, and for Nikki, a $600 pair of boots, end quote, Vince stated. Kaufman took Motley to Grass Valley, California to train them and work out the kinks of their live show. In an, in an article from a newspaper in Grass Valley, Nikki Six explained to the writer that Motley wasn't a punk band because, and I quote, that's destruction. They like to smash their heads into walls, slash their wrists. We're just different. Maybe a little ahead of our time. Maybe in five years, every band will look like us, end quote. Kaufman had set up a radio interview for the band, and during the interview, the DJ asked, and I quote, where are you from? Vince stated, and I quote, we looked at each other speechless. And Mick says, Mars, end quote. Sometime after returning to L.A., the crew had a show at the Country Club. While the rest of the band was at the club, Vince was shooting up at his girlfriend's house when he remembered they had a gig in 10 minutes. Yet he was at least 45 minutes away. When Vince finally showed up in, in a bathrobe and looking like an old man, the band was upset and told him if he was going to shoot up one more time, then he was out of the band. About a month later, Kaufman would get Nikki, Vince, and Tommy in an apartment about a block away, a block off a strip near the Whiskey A Go Go. Mick was living with his girlfriend and didn't want to live with the youngsters in the now dubbed Motley House. Nikki states, and I quote, we took a bed sheet that we stripped from Tommy's bed and painted our name on in big black letters as our backdrop. Then with inspiration from the band Queen, Tommy and Vince built a three-tiered drum riser. A frame of two-by-fours two by pointed with the stretched black cloth, cloth over the top and mounted with 15 flashing lights and skulls and drumsticks. It weighed a ton and was a pain to assemble each show, end quote. Even though selling out show after show, no label would sign Motley Crue. Mainly due to the live show was too, was too erratic and no way their music would ever get on radio or make the pop charts. Hard rock, heavy metal was dead. New wave was all that mattered to the labels. Like, example of the Go-Go's, the Knack. So the band of Mis Misfits created their own label name named Leather Records, but changing the spelling instead of T-H-E-R at the end, they put T-H-U-R with the two dots above the U. They would book time in the cheapest studios they could find. As Nikki said, uh, quote, a $600 an hour, or sorry, a $60 an hour outhouse on a bad stretch of Olympic Avenue. Mick liked the place because it has a trident board and really small rooms that he said were great for natural reverb. Mick then fired the studio's man engineer and brought in Michael Wagner, a jovial, cherubic German who used to be in a metal band except. Together, we spit out two pass for love in three drunken days for only $6,000, end quote. While no distribution company would distribute the album, Cobham put out the the record driving around and talking to record stores into carrying a couple of copies in November 1981. However, within a four-month window, 
Green World, a distributor, would distribute the album, and 20,000 albums were sold without any major label help. Tom Zutat, who had worked for WEA Distribution Branch in Chicago, got promoted to a position at Elektra Records in L.A. as assistant in the sales department. After coming to Elektra, Tom stated, and I quote, I was always trying to get the label to sign the bands I was into, but they never listened to me. I gave them I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett, which I found on the B-side of a European single. Tainted Love by, the soft, by soft Cell, the band Human League, and even the Go-Go's. And they passed on all of them. I was too shy to rub it in their faces, though. I felt lucky to even be working for a record label in L.A. at age 20, end quote. While stopping at a coffee shop on Sunset Boulevard, he noticed hundreds of kids trying to get into a concert at the Whiskey. He looked up at the marquee to see who was playing, and it read, and I quote, Motley Crue, sold out, end quote. Tom got in the club showing his Electra Records business card and bluffing his way in by telling the doorman, and I quote, that I'm the A&R man for the label, end quote. While inside the club, Tom saw 500 TJ teenagers the club's capacity were going berserk for Motley Crue. After the show, Tom found Alan Kaufman and told him he wants to bring the band to a lecture for a meeting. Kaufman brushed off Tom and told him he needed to talk to Green World, who was handling the distribution of Too Fast for Love. After talking to Alan Niven at the Green World booth at a trade, trade show in L.A., Niven put Tom back in contact with Kaufman, who Tom describes as and I quote, a strange manager, an overly serious billing contractor, end quote. Making sure he wasn't overstepping his bounds, Tom asked the A&R department at Electra, and I quote, if I could sign the band, and they laughed in my face, end quote. However, for Motley, a persistent Tom put together a file with letters from the A&R department rejecting all the bands he had brought to them, and that went on to have hits on other labels. And I quote, at the urging of my boss in the sales department, I presented the letters to Joe Smith, the chairman of Electra, who, to my surprise, rose to the challenge. Okay, wise guy, he told me. You think you can do this? Fine, but let's sign this band and see how good you really are, end quote. Tom was the laughing stock of Hollywood for courting Motley Crue. Popular music at the time was British New Wave, Haircut 100, Bands like A Flock of Seagulls, Dexy Midnight Runners, so on and so forth. On his tiny sales department assistant expense account, Tom began whining and dying the crew. According to Tom, and I quote, Nikki was the only one to take these meetings seriously. He had mapped out each step of the band's future in his head, and he knew the kids were sick of New Wave, angry at Punk for having sold out, and they were bored to death. Death with Fleetwood Mac, Foreigner, and Light FM Pop. He wanted to expand the 500 kids at the Whiskey into a national rock and roll evolution that Motley Crue was going to lead. End quote. Tom was finally ready to sign a deal between Crue and Electra when Virgin Records showed up out of the blue. Tom stated this about the Virgin way of courting Motley Crue, and I quote Virgin met with the band and brought a briefcase filled with $10,000 in cash to dangle in front of their starving faces. Virgin at the time didn't have a label or distribution deal in America, 
They operated out of England, and they tried to use that to seduce the band, telling them that they could be like the Beatles, the Stones, and Zeppelin, and break into America by getting popular in England first. In the end, although Virgin offered a $25,000 or offered $25,000 more than Electra, the band decided it would be smarter for a Los Angeles rock band to sign with a Los Angeles rock label. After me and the band hammered out the final points and agreed to sign the deal, Kaufman, the band, and some Electra staffers, and I celebrated at a Mexican restaurant, end quote. Nothing was ever easy for Motley. The head of the A&R department at Electric, Kenny Butis, was furious with Tom for going over his head and, and got permission to sign a crew from Joe Smith. So Kenny did everything he could to, to make Tom and the band's life difficult. Tom states, and I quote, Originally, Electra was just going to release, re-release the Too Fast for Love album that Motley had put out on their own. But Kenny convinced the label, that the quality wasn't up to radio standard. And the only way to put it out was to remix it, end quote. Electra picked Roy Thomas Baker to rework the album. Baker is an eccentric British maverick who produced Queen, Foreigner, The Cars, Electra label mates, and Journey to name a few artists he has worked with. Tom states this about the remix Too Fast for Love, and I quote, though his last minute mixing, phasing, and production tricks took away some of the raw charm of the original leather album, end quote. Just when the remix was finished, Kaufman suddenly decided to send Motley on a tour of Canada. Even though Electra had no album to promote, as they still needed to print and send the finished remixed album to pressing plants. Years later, in a lawsuit, the truth was told as why the band was shoved on tour so quick, as Kaufman had sold a portion of his stake in the band to a Michigan kid who had pulled his parents' life savings, about $25,000, so he could own 5% of Motley Crue, Inc. The band went to Canada, where they were met with death and bomb threats, border, prob border problems, and fistfights, to name a few. Also, Elytra knew they needed an album to sell in Canada, so they pressed copies of the original Too Fast for Love on LP and cassette to promote the tour. Soon after the Canadian tour, Kaufman vanished, along with the band's money and the entire Electra advance, and that poor kid, Michigan kid's money. Once the remix was ready, Electra pulled all of the originals off the shelves in Canada and replaced, replaced them with the 1982 remix version. As far as the U.S. release of the remix Too Fast for Love, it was released on August 20th, 1982. It was a disaster. As a label had made an Australian band Cold Chisel its priority with everyone in the promotions department intent on making them the next big thing. Tom talks about when he listened in on a conference call with the regional promotions band and the head of the radio department. And I quote, listen, I've got a station in Denver and another in Colorado Springs that just added Motley Crue. They're not interested in Cold Chisel but I'll keep working on them, end quote. That head of the radio department said, and I quote, I don't give up about Motley Crue. He yelled back, they're not a priority. I don't want those ads. 
You tell those stations that if they add Motley Crue, they can go themselves, end quote. So I hit what I thought were the biggest moments from the beginning of the band to release of, to the release of the remix version of Too Fast for Love. Too Fast for Love was certified gold in September 27, 1984, and platinum by the RIAA in July 22, 1987. I got these numbers from the RIAA.com website. Most, almost all my information that I got for the history of Motley Crue, for the beginning history of 81 to 82, I got from their book, The Dirt, which is a pretty good read, um, especially if you're in the band. If you're not into the band, it would come off more as a pornography field type, especially in the beginning. Um, there's a lot of instances in there where they had a lot of stuff going on. A lot of it I decided not to put in here. I even self-censored myself a couple of times, um, especially on that last part uh, with the A&R or the head of the radio department being a jerk, in my opinion. Anyway, so let's get on to the album, Too Fast for Love, released by Electra Records. Again, August 20, 20th, 1982. Now, I want to just point out a few differences, um, just a few differences between the Original Leather Records version and the remixed Electra release. The first big difference is, is the track listing. Public Enemy number one is the second song on side one instead of three on the Electra remix version. The song Take Me to the Top is number three on side one instead of being number five on the same side on the Electra version. Piece of Your Action, song number five on. Side one of the original release is on side two, song one on the Electra version. Starry Eyes is song number one on side two of the original instead of being song number two on the Electra version. A song called Stick to Your Guns was song number two on side two of the original but omitted from the Electra version. A song called Come On and Dance is song number three on side two. But on the Electra version, it is song number two on side one. On the original, there were a total of 10 songs. With omitting one, Electra knocked it down to just nine in the remix version. One of the other um, things is the length of two songs were shortened uh, between the original Leather Records, Leather Records and remix Electra Records version of Two Pastor Love album. And the song, first song that was shortened was a song called Come On and Dance. Was originally three minutes and 11 seconds on, on, on the leather records. Yet remixed down to two minutes, 47 seconds on the Electra release. So three minutes, 11 seconds on the original leather records, but shortened to two minutes, 47 seconds on the re remixed version of the album by Electra. And the other song, <laughs> this is what makes me go crazy. The other song was the title track, Too Fast for Love, was originally 4 minutes and 11 seconds on the original, yet cut down to 3 minutes 22 seconds on the remix. And most of the cutting came out from the beginning of the song. They removed the very beginning of the song, which started slowly like a ballad, and then kicked into what is considered the Too Fast riff. So let's go ahead and get into the Too Fast for Love. The Electra 
remix version of 1982. I don't have. <laughs> I wish I had a copy of the original, 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 original. I did find a uh, copy of the original um, on YouTube, and I'll and I'll talk about that later. Um, or talk about that towards the end. But let's go ahead and dive into Too Fast for Love," released by Electra Records, August twentieth, nineteen eighty-two. Side one or track and track one, "Livewire." And Mick opens with this crunchy guitar. I mean, it gives me really you had to kind of. It was more like a, a a machine gun style type riff. And Tommy hits the snare with four quick taps. Then you hear the hi hat. And it's, when you hear the hi-hat, it's one of those, it's not him hitting it with the stick. It's just him hit, using his foot to open and close the hi-hat. With Vince giving a breath and Nikki bringing in the raunchy bass groove, Vince sings the first ber- verse with the band coming in on the chorus. Now, the band coming on the chorus is the backing vocals. As we get into, uh, there's a breakdown in the song where they slow it down, time change, slow it down, you know. and or you know, kind of like I talked about with Tennessee and Ford, but this this time change is a little bit different. Vince holds a, a note and gives this little demonic chuckle, <laughs> kind of like that, roughly. Mick obviously is using chords at this point. Tommy pulls back on killing the drums again. Tommy Lee, if you ever seen a man play drums, uh, drum solos, or even just play on songs, he beats the living crud out of these drums. I mean, he is. I'm surprised he never popped a drum head in a in a show. I really am. At least one I haven't heard about. How's that? Anyway, so and Nikki gives us a basic bass line to hold it together. And the nice part about the with the even with the remix version is, as they get on, as you go into deeper albums, not even just by Motley Crue, but most bands, they're over. They really overproduce it. Where you know you got the when you like go into a guitar solo, you always got the riff, the main riff, or 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 a chord being played behind it. Um, you know they're literally overdubbing four or five guitar sounds to make this one sound, which you can't really reproduce in a show unless you're playing backing tapes. Anyways, Vince comes back in with the lyrics, "Come on, baby, you got to play with me." Well, I'm your live wire. Better lock your doors. I'm on a prowl tonight. Well, be mine tonight. And he holds that note, holds that at the end there with the intensity, while the intensity is being brought back up and it gets back into the speed and loud again. And the song heads to the end where Tommy, as we get to the end, they'll, they'll play. And then Tommy will use the hi-hat again on the first stop just with his foot. And then, but they'll kick back in Mick and Nikki. Then he'll, the second stoppage, uh, he'll hit the crash cymbal. On the third stoppage, he'll hit a cowbell. The fourth time, which is actually technically the final time of the stoppage, he hits a crash again, and the band plays on for a bit, finishes with just a two-beat finish. Dut-dut. The main difference with this song and the original release of this song, for me, the biggest difference... I got is when when there's when there's this part where there's um it, I believe that the lyric is I'm alive and in the original le- leather records version it's I'm alive you know kind of like a demonic saying 
Um, and also at the end during all these stoppages in the song where Tommy's hitting, doing these different things with the drums, they're also clapping. Now I find that one kind of funny cause it was like, okay, you really didn't need that in there. But then again, I'm saying that as somebody who heard the original fur or heard the remix version only first and not the original, not the original album. So, you know, had I heard the original first and then come back and listen to the remix version, I probably would have hated the remix version. Well, anyways, one other difference is there's not much of a gap between the songs, even on the LP. There's not much gap between these songs. So, boom, right after that finishes, we're jump right into Come On Dance. We get another raunchy guitar riff from McMars while Tommy hits a snare, hits just a snare beat. Vince coming in with an, an ah, crescendo, uh, kind of like that, except he's higher pitched than me. Then Tommy using the bass drum as a beat, um, just to hold the beat. Nikki on bass matching Tommy's beat during the crescendo. Bring the song to the opening verse. Took my love into overdrive. Custom pink tonight. You'll pay the price. Cowbell just before the chorus. Come on and dance. Band providing backing vocals to Vince. Now, one thing I've noticed a lot in this album, on this record here and on this album, is the fact that Tommy, he, he was in love with that cowbell. It is used, I, I, I wish I should have kept count how many times. I mean, I will while we're going along here, I'll just make a little tally on a, on a piece of paper or something of how many times Tommy hits his cowbell. This is obviously, or how many songs. This is obviously number two. So we'll, I'll just keep a little tally here to my, if I mention Cowbell. I believe it's at least <laughs> at least four songs out of, out of the ten, well, nine songs that Electra did. But anyways, so then we get into why, what makes guitar soul and, what, and how I would describe it was literally Mick recreating the siren from London. You know, one of those kind of do-do-do-do, kind of like that. But he's creating it with the guitar. You know, he's not, he's not getting a doo-doo-doo, but, you know, using the guitar to make that. The guitar, obviously, is also hooked up to amps, and you've got the pedals all hooked up to distort, you know, all the distortion. And, he, and it really just gets this really crazy friggin' sound. But it does sound like uh, one of the old ambulances or something from, or, you know, the sirens from London or from overseas. Quick tapping on the strings and bending the string to give that ear-piercing ear screech. Then he comes to the lower end, up higher up on, up on the top of the neck, obviously the bigger strings, and gives it a raunchy, deeper run that ends with pushing down what it sounds like to me, pressing down the tr- tremolo bar, give it that where the strings all just kind of, you bend it down, the strings all bend inward, kind of just to lose it. Um, back in the 80s, we call this a whammy bar. Then, then just using a rip while Nikki brings in the bass to keep the song together. Tommy striking the cowbell about four times and continuing back to Vince singing the first verse again. Back into the chorus, Tommy just hits the cymbals and beats with Nikki just giving a basic bass line. Vince coming in with some high notes and a scream, and then Vince and the band sing Come On and Dance four times and finish the song. Come on and dance. Come on and dance. Come on and dance. Come on and dance. Then we jump right into Public Enemy number one. She just kind of pops in with dun da dun da dun which is literally kind of a four sections there on the first and third tommy's actually hitting the snare drum on that final beat and then on the second and fourth he gives the he hits the top hits a tom tom 
you know, I'm using changing it up a little bit just so I can make it kind of get the sound across. I'm sure it's going to sound like crap, but whatever. And this last literally seven, those four sections just boom, seven seconds into the song. And then Mick trails off into the famous guitar line for the song, which is kind of like that. And it just repeats that over and over and over. The rest of the band continues to play the opening sections, like I said, and they, you know, Tommy and, and Nikki, rest of the band, Vince ain't doing nothing at this point. Just dun da dun da dun 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 da dun da dun. So just keep playing that over and over. Then Vince comes in with the lyrics or with the first verse and make he makes he's just hitting chords and plays a palm muted gallop on the guitar. I'm more sound like a bass than a freaking guitar, but whatever. You have to hear it when you hear the song. <laughs> Vince seeing the verses with a lower register or lower octave than what he what he had been at this point. And during these chorus, the band sings, oh yeah. Uh, before the second verse, back to the beginning with the famous guitar line and Vince chuckling. <laughs> McSolo just flows with the song, finishes with a pick scrape up the strings. Now all that is is turn the pick sideways, grab a couple of strings, and just slide it upwards. Or down, however you want to do it. Depends on how he, more likely he went up. He might have gone, no, he definitely went up. Tommy, again, using the cowbell in the chorus this time. And at the end, we had the band doing a finish with Vince saying, hey, about three times. And then the song stops. And he goes, da-da-da-da-da, hey, da-da, kind of like that. They do that about three times, and then, boom, song just stops. We jump right into merry-go-round. Now, this is the only ballad on the whole record. Um, and you got Mick using a clean guitar. Now, this is... You know, it's still amplified, but it's now non-distorted. Tommy, using those symbols, you know, using the symbols, and I wish, you know, if, this, if I was actually recording this for video, pretty much all he's doing is taking the two sticks and hitting two symbols, just ever so slightly, just to bring up a crescendo of the symbol. And then Vince comes in with a melodic, a melodic voice for the verse. Then Tommy hits the crown, the crown of the symbol. That's where they hit up towards where the symbol hooks on to the actual stand that holds the symbol, and there's this little crown there. You hit it, and you get this really high-pitched ting, ting, or clank. Sometimes it sounds like a clank, and I just hit the microphone. The band, then the full band, um, and then brings in the bass drum. So after the crown of the symbol, and then Tommy then brings in the bass drum. Then the full band joins in during the chorus with only Vince singing. That's one thing I noticed in this with this song. There wasn't much background vocals with Motley Crue. And I don't, actually, in this whole song, I don't think they ever used um, any background vocals with the band. Um, a lot of the songs on here, I did notice that it seemed like the band wasn't used that much. But again, this is also a Rick, the remix version. So who knows? Maybe they were originally in there. I will have to actually go back and listen to the Leather Records version one. I only heard it once. I found it on YouTube, but we'll go over that later. Second time through, Vince, the verse, Vince comes with, comes with, a, with higher octave. Then Mick gives a melodramatic guitar solo, exactly how I describe it. And the chorus comes back with a faster pace and then finishes with a slowdown and Vince whispering the final lyric, I'm coming home, babe. Then Vince comes back and holding a higher note and Tommy hitting the, again the crown of the cymbals and the song, or hits the crown of the cymbal and the song finishes. Then we jump into the fifth and final song of side one, Take Me to the Top. Tommy just comes in, 
kind of like a quick roll on the snare. The band joins in for this fast-paced song. Nikki provided another raunchy bass line that brings the groove, with Mick giving the raunchy, crunchy metal guitar riff. During the first verse, Nikki gives a nice scale breakdown on the bass, and that's just literally going through a scale on the bass, which gives you kind of a, um, kind of like a bass solo in a way. And during the course, Vince gives us a great Vince Neil scream. Guitar solo break again, Mick showing his experience with Nikki just picking the bass strings to give that dirty, raunchy bass. After the solo, back to the chorus to finish with using an echo to finish using an echo on Vince's voice saying top over and over and over. And then that's where the song ends. Top, 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 kind of like that. So that's the end of the side one. However, this is a CD. And then we'll jump right into a piece of your action, which then would be song six. But since we're talking about sides, we're going to jump. This is actually song number one on side two called Piece of Your Action. If you ever really wanted to know what this song is about, just think of the name of it. The whole band just starts the song off. Vince giving us some ooh, yes in the beginning. And then the first verse comes in, he comes in a lower octave and then heads to his normal singing, singing voice for pre-chorus and chorus. During the guitar solo, just Mick and Tommy with Nikki hitting one note, then providing another raunchy bass groove during the solo. Then as the solo ends, it's just Mick and Tommy using the, Tommy using the hi-hat and ends with Vince coming in with his high scream. Back into the pre-chorus, into the chorus, song finishes with Mick providing another short solo, Vince screaming right now at the last, on the last two beats. So Tommy hits two beats at the same time Vince is saying right now, or screaming right now. Now we head to track number seven, again, if you're listening to the CD, this is song number two on the LP, since this would be side two, or even the cassette tape. If, as long as it's the electric version, Electra version. The song's called Starry Eyes, and it's kind of interesting because it's not spelled, it's, or it's spelled um, S-T-A-R-R-Y and then I's normal spelling. Tommy starts the song after a clap from Vince. Tommy just comes in with a basic drum beat. And then Vince just comes in with a quick. And then the band comes in, Vince providing a lustful voice in the opening lyrics. Just before chorus, mix slides pick up the strings. Again, that guitar slide with the, with, the, with the pick. Then before the solo, Mick and Nikki provide a sexy, dirty, raunchy groove with Vince singing, oh no. Then Mick jumps in, in your face, guitar solo that fits snug into the song. Back into the chorus after the solo with using an echo on Vince's voice. As song ends, Mick jumps into another solo as the song fade out, fades out. Track number eight, if we're again listening to the CD, track three while we're listening to the record. The title track of the album, Too Fast for Love. Now, you heard me talk about it at the beginning of this, uh, before we got into the album itself. Electric cut the song apart. So, obviously, in this version, you get Mick jumping right in. Something like that, which is known to Motley fans as a Too Fast riff. Then Tommy comes in hitting the tom-toms with Nikki matching. Vince singing, I believe it's Yeah, No. At the end of the verse, they, they use Vince overdubs to provide a backing vocals. Now, this is a time I realized they were, it was only Vince because I had my headphones on, listening to it from the iTunes, my album from the iTunes, which is actually a later release. However, again, so I could hear just a little bit more. Um, actually, on the record, you can even hear it 
um because i did listen to this uh last week with, with the record so just to get kind of listen to what the if there was much differences between the original record you know the original recording okay so at the end of the verse they use vince overdubs to provide the backing vocals then in the chorus of band sings too fast too fast for love so too fast too fast for love and the vince comes in too fast too fast for love kind of like that at the end of the song this kind of gets interesting because we get to the end of the song everyone stops playing but nikki he does his little bass thing then tommy on the second time he does a drum thing pretty much gives a roll over the toms over the tom toms and then at the lat or the next one mick gives a guitar blast and then the song starts fading out as vince is changing into a higher octave as it finishes then we cut right into song number nine the last song of the record song four on with the show mick comes in with his a clean guitar sound providing the opening um kind of um no, i can't i'm not gonna try this one this one i always mess up even after all these years of listening to it <laughs> anyways vince comes in with the opening verse in a higher melodic register instead of his usual beginning voice tommy comes in towards the end of the second verse with a couple snaps on the snare roll through the toms vince sings the chorus guitar solo just adds a break between the chorus and third verse then there's another guitar solo that starts slow and speeds up again, adding a flair to the song. Then just Mick on guitar while Vince sings the fourth and final verse. And the band joins during the chorus and repeats chorus heading towards the end, where, the Vin- where Vince ends the song with a lyric, Oh baby. Kind of like that. Now one thing Nicky did state, and he stated in the book Dirt about this song. And this is kind of interesting because... The song, and I really didn't have it up when I, I should have, I wish I would have always had this higher, so I left it up there higher so I could have seen it, could have read it real quick. Um, pretty much when Vince sings, you know, Frankie died just the other night. Some say it was suicide, but we know how the story goes. Kind of like how he sings it, except mine's not melodic. Vince is definitely melodic. And a lot higher friggin' pitched. Anyways, so in the book, In the Dirt, Nikki Six states that, and I quote, First, I killed Frank Piranha Jr. in a song. And that song is On With The Show, where I wrote the lyrics, Frankie died just the other night. Some say it was suicide. But we know how the story goes. End quote. Well, end quote of the song lyrics. Then, I made it legal. End quote. What Nikki's talking about here is... His name was Frank Piranha Jr. His father wanted nothing to do with him. He tried to call up his father one time um, to talk to him. His father told him to quit calling, quit calling. He doesn't have a son, da, 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 so on and so forth. Nikki pretty much ended up telling him to F off, hung up the phone. Then that's when Nikki wrote these lyrics. And then he went and had his name changed from Frank Piranha Jr. to Nikki Six. So it's kind of, it, you know, for this song for Motley fans, it's for. The main main gist of the song, or at least this very beginning of the song, is Nikki ending his life as Frank Ferrana and becoming the new Nikki Six. My whole opinion of this album, unfortunately, you're never gonna hear me say there is a Motley Crue song I hate, or is my well, actually, I'll take that back. I do have one overall favorite song by Motley Crue, um, but it will come later when we get when i finally get into that album however there isn't one 
my opinion is this. There, you know, obviously, if you remember from Tennessee Ford, when we talked about there, the first one was a favorite song. There isn't one song on Two Pass Love that I turn to when I start listening to the, when I, play, when I just want to listen to Motley Crue. I will just listen to the album from beginning to end to take a trip with crew. From being a live wire to always remembering, regardless of the situation, we must go on with the show. The only gripe I would have is the fact that Elektra decided to remix and chop up the original. And the crew were too naive to put a stop to it. Overall sound, even with the album being remixed, you still hear the raw energy of the band, who had never worked in a studio session. Even though the remix changed the order of the songs, omitted one song, shortened two songs, it still isn't overproduced. McMars will never be added into the conversation as Eddie Van Halen and Jimmy Page. But Mick shows that sometimes being less flashy and just playing riffs and chords, you can put, get, put together a magical sound. Now, you talk to a Motley Crue fan, and it won't matter. Mick Mars is God. He is better than Page. He's better than Eddie Van Halen. But he's not, not a flashy player. And a lot of it's probably because he is an elder member of the band. And probably because also, I believe, some of his uh, upbringing, or not upbringing, but some of his musical uh, gods are like Jeff Beck. And he wasn't a flashy player either. Nikki Six, besides the songwriting, the lyricist for all the songs, with pretty much one help on Public Enemy number one from Lizzie Gray, who was a member of the band London with Nicky. He just provides a basic, dirty, raunching bass guitar. He would later state that he let Tommy be the flash of the rhythm section and just kept it basic. And it's true. You got Tommy Lee going all over the crazy place. You don't need to be crazy yourself. Somebody has to be under control. Tommy Lee. <laughs> Even being only 17 when he joined with Nicky, you can hear the magic. A master of his crap at such a young age. Tommy Lee just, man, I, I tell you one thing. Anybody was born with talent. And Mick Mars was definitely born with talent. But as far as drums go, he is the master. You know, if this, if this, if this was a Star Wars podcast, he would be Yoda. <laughs> Tommy Lee would be Yoda. Everyone else would be the students <laughs> in my book. Again, this is my opinion. Again, this is my favorite band. So guess what? I'm not giving more love than anybody else would. Vince provides, Vince, oh wow, Vince Neil just provides a short octave register compared to other singers. However, he gives melodic to demonic when needs, when it needs be, or if needed, that ear piercing scream. Even though the original was recorded only about six months after Vince joined Nikki, Tommy, and Mick, Too Fast for Love is, in my opinion, the first brick into what would become that signature Motley Crue sound and style. It's easy to see, even with, even with this remix, how the band was selling out shows, shows and sold so many copies of the original and of this remix version by only word of mouth. I wish I would have written down the first time I had heard this album, but I didn't. However, after being exposed to Motley Crue in 1984, when a friend let me borrow his cassette of Shout the Devil so I could hear it and copy it, the first album I ever bought by Motley Crue was 1985 Theater of Pain. It was on cassette tape. And in late 1985, after seeing, a sh uh, after watching the show, I think it was on USA Network, called Radio 1990, Vince Neil and Tommy Lee were on there being interviewed by Wendy O. Williams. And unfortunately, I had to leave for football practice. Um, I was in Pop Warner football at the time. Anyways, I got home. Uh, my other buddy, my other friend, he called me up and said, hey, man, how much of that show did you see? And I told him. He's like, oh, man, you missed it. 
I went, what do you mean? He's like, there's another song. I'm like, what do you mean? There's a song we don't have. I'm like, what is it called? It's called Livewire. I'm like, what the heck is this? Well, unfortunately, you know, this is 1985. We don't have internet. So around Christmas time, I, I think it was about Christmas or yeah, probably around the first of December, I buy a Hit Parader magazine. And inside this magazine, they give all the information about bands. And they got Motley Crue in there. Obviously, I bought it because Crue was on the cover. And they gave the, the notion that Motley Crue, or they gave the notion, they showed or listed their albums at the time. And the first, you know, right at the top, Too Fast for Love, 1982. Excuse me? Then it said Shout the Devil, 1983. The Era Pain, 1985. I went, okay, um, okay, I gotta go find this Too Fast for Love album. So we go to a little small town, or not, smaller, not, not smaller than the one we live in at the time. This is, I'm still at the time living in Battle Mountain, Nevada. We go to a town for shopping, normal shopping. Um, we gotta drive 73 miles to the east to go decent grocery shopping and the hit bill of hit stores like Kmart and Payless, Sprouse Rights, shows how old this is back, JC Penney's. So we go to this town called Elko, Elko, Nevada. We go to Payless and I'm looking over the cassette tapes because I'm looking for a cassette from my buddy because we, me and him, do, you know, package exchange uh, Christmas Eve. Also, I see this red cassette tape with white letters on it, Motley Crue. I flip it over, flip it, look at it. Holy crap. There's Livewire. Oh, wow. This is it. This is the album. Oh, my gosh. So I buy it. Not for me, but for my friend. When he opened it on Christmas Eve, instead of running home to listen to it, we went straight back to my, my room, picked up my boombox, cranked it out. Well, while we were cranking it out, I went ahead and put a cassette tape in. Because he said, go ahead, record it, copy it, make a copy of it so you can listen to it too. Unfortunately, all I can say is, I really don't know what my first impression was. I mean, I obviously had dug it because it's, I've never hated any song off of it. So, but I really don't have my first, my first impression. I wish I did. However, the original version of the Leather Records version is actually on YouTube. If you go to my page, the Used and Abused Pod, YouTube page. Um, just go under the playlist tab on the page and it should be there. I liked it and also I believe I uh, saved it on there. And just gives you an idea of what this album sound like. I would do is recommend if you never heard this album, I would suggest listening to the original first. Then if you got any uh any type of streaming music on like, you know, uh Apple Music, um, what is there, Google Play too? Or you probably could even just type in Too Fast for Love, Electra. There'd probably be a copy of that on, you, on YouTube too. But I would suggest listening to the Leather Records release, which is 10 songs, and then listen to the Electra version. Again, you don't have to. I'm just stating that the original Leather Records is actually on YouTube. One final note. The current version of Too Fast for Love, the versions of Too Fast for Love, that are out now on CD or iTunes, Google Play Music are the Electra remix that were was again remixed by uh, Motley in the late '90s when they also added unreleased songs from session from the sessions, including a cover of the Raspberries Tonight, a song called Toast of the Town, which was originally on side two of Stick to Your of the Stick to Your Guns 45 Leather Records release, 
and the original Too Fast for Love that starts slow, which has a real first verse to the song, and the omitted stick to your guns. So the history section was definitely taken from The, the Dirt, which is a Motley Crue book, which after, I'm trying to I remember what came out now, but it's, it's now is actually going to come out in a movie adaptation, which is actually in post-production and will be released on Netflix more likely next year, in 2019. Um, once I have the information on the release date, I will bring it to everyone's attention through social media and I mentioned on an episode of this podcast. In closing, I'd like to thank you all for downloading this episode. If you haven't, subscribe, please do, so you won't miss any episodes. Used and abused can be found at Found on social media on Twitter at used abused pod, Instagram used and abused pod, and it's spelled out A N D. Email you can email me anytime used and abused pod at gmail.com. Again, and A N D is spelled out that is used and abused pod at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Anchor, Google Play Music, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and Radio Public. Again, please subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes or any mini episodes that will be coming very soon. Also, please rate and review Use and Abuse a Music Podcast. Five stars, please. Five stars. And until next week, have a great weekend. Be kind to everyone and keep the music playing.